there's also this idea that people who are suicidal, who think about suicide, or who have attempted suicide, are weak, like weak. I wouldn't say that's mentally weak. I actually would say that's mentally strong to be able to survive once again and again and again these uh, repetitive thoughts uh, or the thoughts that might come once in a while. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. Steve Opolinik. This is our eighth Stigma is Curable event uh, that we are doing with the Promethean Project. And we are super, super excited to have Isabel Garcia here with us today. Um, she is going to be our guest speaker for today for the event. And so we're excited for anyone who wants to join on Zoom. You can join us on the event. The link is in the, the event um, forum. You can click on join us and participate on that way or anyone on Facebook live feel free to when we get to the question answer part of the conversation to drop us a line um, and I'll read out the questions from Facebook live to you and um, you'll just hear the response so we'll get started so today's event is about suicide not just awareness and prevention but just uh, a lot of the intricacies, the myths, the biases that also come with suicide. And as I said before, we're so excited to have you, Isabel, with us today to talk about it, talk about your experiences and um, to, to move along that way. So um, I'm gonna kick it over to you. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to say that uh, if you join on Zoom, I just, oh, I just got a message from Facebook Live saying the Zoom isn't opening. So I'll take a look at that when I kick it over to you. Um, but uh, if you join us, feel free to come in, mute as you enter. And then anyone on Zoom who wants to ask questions, type it into the chat. Um, and so I can kind of just make a list of the questions and then I can come back and either read it for you or ask you to read your own question if you want to. But uh, those are just semantics. Um, we're gonna move forward, so it's all yours, Isabel. Yeah. Well, first, I want to say thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, suicide is a topic that not many people like to talk about. Not even people who actually work in the mental health field. And uh, you know, ironically, why? Because it's highly stigmatized, right? So thank you for for having me and for giving me um, the opportunity to talk, just to talk about it. So I'm gonna be sharing my screen uh, and I am going to introduce myself, but I like to introduce myself with my intersectionality. 
I think intersectionality, the concept of it is really, really important. So what are those identities, those marginalized identities um, and those privileged identities as well that I have uh, that in a combination basically create my experience in the world, in this, especially in this country. So when I talk about marginalized identities, I'm talking about those identities that is specifically in the US give me less advantages to and you know grow spiritually, <laughs> mentally, emotionally. Uh, they are less um, there are, oh, I want to say there are more barriers to get to certain opportunities. So for instance, I am Dominican. I identify as Afro-Caribbean and Latina. I immigrated to the US 13 years ago when I was 15 years old. I am, uh, or I identify as first generation. And that means that even though my mother went to college back in the Dominican Republic, I didn't have anyone to guide me through, you know, through the college process. It was, it was almost like my mom didn't come to college at all. I experienced it all on my own and had to learn the entire system by myself. So that is why I consider myself a first gen student or ex-student. I guess, not anymore, no longer a student. Um, I'm also low income. Uh, English is my second language. Spanish is my first language. And I have experienced what I call suicidality and you know, suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideations since I was a child, maybe seven, eight years old. And that's why I put this picture here. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I really like these pictures of me. I think they are cute. These are literally the cutest pictures that I have. <laughs> I selected them, right? I was very specific. These are the cutest pictures of me ever. And what I want to say with those pictures is that, you know, suicide has no, has no age and it also doesn't have a specific face to it. You can see in these pictures that I look very happy. I have a huge smile on my face and anyone who can look at these pictures, who could guess, oh yeah, totally. She totally looks suicidal in these pictures. Not really, I am not crying, right? I am not doing any of these things that supposedly indicate that someone might be thinking of suicide. So I put these pictures here to really, that's other way to break that, uh, this idea break down uh, or, or break away from this idea that you have to look a certain way um, to be suicidal. And lastly, in terms of marginalized identities, I identify as a psychiatric survivor. What that means is that when I immigrated to this country 13 years ago, literally two or three weeks after moving to this country, I was already in a psychiatric hospital because I ran away from the home that I was living in. I ran away, I had the urge to die. So I ran away and I went to the first hospital I saw on the street and said to the nurse, I want to die. And so that was the beginning of my psychiatric journey. That was my welcome to the US tour, a bunch of psychiatric hospitals, 
residential programs, mostly, literally, I would say four out of five were involuntary hospitalizations. And so there is a lot of trauma that I have attached to that, a lot of anger attached to that. And because, why? Because I was, you know, forced into these hospitals, most of them against my will. And during my uh, experience in residential programs, I was, you know, in solitary confinement and all these uh, coercive practices. But I can talk more about that later on. And so that, uh, you know, being a psychiatric survivor and all of that had shaped the way that I see the mental health system and how I address suicide in general. Now, I do have marginalized identities, but I also have privileged identities. So for instance, I am cisgender. So right, the doctor was like, look, look at the genitals. A girl, she, her, her pronouns, right? Like, whatever, like that's just default. And well, I grew up believing that, you know, I am a female and that I'm a woman. So quote unquote, it matches. So as we know, society believes that's the norm. And so I don't have to worry. I honestly don't have to worry at all about gender identity. And that also goes with sexual orientation. I identify straight. And again, we know that society, specifically in the US, says that's quote unquote the default. Don't have to worry about it, right? The same with I'm able-bodied. I don't have to think about any of the space I go, any of the spaces I go in. I have, I don't have to think about any accommodations whatsoever. And then even though people talk about religion in terms of privileged identities, they say Christianity, for instance, I believe that the fact that I don't identify with a religion and don't think about it, I believe that's still a privilege. <laughs> so I always add the non-religious aspect there. So that is me, right? Uh, that is uh, Isabel Garcia. Now, if we look at the, I guess, quote unquote, professional side, I do own a business called Estoy Aquí. And this business is basically based on my story as a psychiatric survivor and my intersectionality, um, mostly on the marginalized side. And so I created Stoyaki literally like three, week, three weeks before the pandemic. I know, hilarious. And I thought, I wanna create an initiative that focuses on social cultural factors um, that are specifically related to suicide risk in the Latino, Latinx and black community. And I thought, so how do I do that? How do I speak about suicide as a social justice issue? It's a thing that is way more than just I'm depressed or I'm anxious. And I thought, well, what about training? What about offering training dialogues? What about going out there and tabling and giving brochures to people and just talk about it in a way that is raw and vulnerable? And so I did it. I now have uh, this initiative and part of that is what I'm gonna be doing here. So I'm gonna be talking about the myths and biases about suicide. And before I get into the actual topic of myths and biases, I think it's important to talk about what in the hell is suicide in the first place? Um, I think it's important to have at least a common ground about what it means. So when I talk about 
suicide. I don't talk about this specific thing that leads to it. I, I don't say, well, bullying causes suicide or uh, poverty causes suicide. The thing is, I believe that there is not a single cause. And many people in the field believe the same, that there's not a single cause to suicide. In fact, it's more about a multifactorial process. So what does that even mean in the first place? So there are things that we call risk factors. So things in our environment, and by things I mean experiences, situations in our environment that make it more likely for a suicidal thought to appear or for a suicidal attempt to happen. And that negative situation or experience can really be anything. But the point is those situations, those experiences, when there is a combination and accumulation of those, then there is a thing that I call the final straw, which is that one situation, that one other situation, that one other experience that leads someone to, says, to say, I have had enough, like I'm done, right? And usually the media says that is that, that situation, that final straw is the thing that causes suicide, but no, that's just the final straw. That what, like, like the very last thing that upper, it's just like, I'm done, right? That's enough. That's why I put that Jeff there. And I also put this Jeff or of I stop my toe. If you ever have, if you ever have like you're walking down your living room and then pop, just stop your toe with like a table or a chair or whatever. If oh my God, that pain is freaking annoying. And it's like your brain becomes like hypersensitive and it only, only focuses on that pain, on that toe. And the only thing that you want is to stop it, right? And that is what happens most often with suicide is that you have all this combination, this accumulation of negative situations in your life. And then that one other situation just makes everything seem like there are no more possibilities, that there are no solutions, that you have tried everything and that there's nothing else that you can do. So that's how I talk about suicide or quote unquote, what causes a suicide. So now that I have talked about that, there are many myths. There are many things that people say about suicide that are untrue. The very first one, like the one that I hear the most is that people who are suicidal, well, they wanna, right? They wanna end their lives. Like they wanna die, duh, right? But the thing is most people who are suicidal, who are thinking about suicide, who fantasize with suicide, who have attempted suicide, really want to end their lives they want to they want the pain to end and so suicide becomes an option okay it becomes an option to end that pain and I love this song so much the artist is called Sick World and this song is called Several Years I love this song because I think it really covers 
a lot of the idea that we want the pain to end and not necessarily die, not necessarily, uh, you know, we don't necessarily want the outcome to be dead for more like, I need the pain to stop. And this is an option. So the uh, part of the lyrics, it says, feels like my heart doesn't beat the same. I wanna give up and I just feel stuck in a life that I know I cannot change. I'm really lonely and feel drained. I just, sometimes I feel like a mistake. I just sit and dwell in my trauma. My life's full of problems. I feel like I might break, try to move on, but I just can't. And, you know, in this lyrics, uh, you know, it says the word stuck, right? Like, it's this, uh, it's like there's no movement. Like, literally, it's like freeze. It's like, in my experience, right? I cannot speak for all people who experience suicidal thoughts or who have attempted suicide. But for me, I feel frozen. It's like I cannot move. Like there's nothing, it feels like there's really nothing else that can be done to make anything better, right? So he says, I just feel stuck in a life that I know I cannot change, right? That, and then drain the exhaustion and the idea that everything is a problem. And you might know that there are good things, but the problems just overpower those you know quote unquote good things and you try to move on right but you just can't again stop so anyhow that's one it's not the outcome is not necessarily quote unquote death it's just how else can we end the pain right it becomes an option then there is and this is one of the biggest ones as well the idea that if you talk about suicide to people, like anybody, they will get the thoughts in their head, like the, the thought of suicide, like suddenly, like they're gonna do it if you talk about it. So the thing is talking, just talking about suicide is not really going to increase the thoughts of suicide. Like if I am, right now I'm talking to Joe, right? Just because I am talking about it doesn't mean that y'all who may have right now suicidal thoughts or who may have had suicidal thoughts or who have never had suicidal thoughts, that doesn't mean that y'all are suddenly gonna think about it and do it after I end this presentation. In fact, talking about suicide openly, talking about that experience, whatever, the pain that is attached to it, whatever, actually gives a lot of people a chance to share their stories. And th there's actually something about it, almost like a liberation. Or, uh, you know, almost like you feel, oh my God, maybe, maybe I can talk about it too. It's, it's kind of like a bravery kind of becomes contagious almost. Um, and I really like this song about Demi Lovato called Anyone. And um, I like it because Demi, as you might know, Demi almost died of an overdose. Um, and she has been fighting, you know, a lot of different things like eating disorders and uh, 
substance use and suicidality and all of this stuff. And even though Demi Lovato is famous, has millions of people that love her, uh, and has many, you know, has friends, right? Has all these, a team has, she still felt alone. And it's not like anyone, right? No pun intended, went to her and really talked about suicide or anything. Everyone, what, what, what people wanted to do was try to fix her. They, want, they wanted the problem to go away. So I like these lyrics that say, you know, I try to talk to my piano. I try to talk to my guitar, talk to my imagination, confide it into alcohol. I try and try and try some more. False secrets till my voice was sore. Tired of empty conversation because no one hears me anymore. Tired of empty conversation. Right, talk to my imagination. That is a huge one. Oh, Demi uses they as a pronoun. Thank you so much. Thank you. So they, they even though had all of, uh, again, the, the, the social circle and quote unquote help still felt alone. And I just think about, I just think about what if they have someone who would just openly say, you know, I wonder, you know, I wonder about what you're feeling right now, what you're experiencing is, is death, is, is suicide becoming an option or a response for you? Like what, what will have happened if the, uh, if they had had an open conversation about any of these feelings. Then there's also this myth about, oh, well, there is no way we can prevent a suicide. There's no way to prevent it because, you know, people hide their feelings. They don't talk about it because of, the prejudice and discrimination, right? They don't talk about, right? The suicide, people who are suicidal or who think about suicide, they don't talk, they don't talk about it, right? They are afraid of judgment. So how can we prevent it? Well, the reality is that most uh, suicidal people or people who are suicidal communicate their intent or their thoughts sometime during the week preceding their attempt. So it might be one, two weeks, months, whatever it is, they are signs that might tell someone around them, oh my God, wait, something, something might be wrong. This person might be considering suicide as an option. So this, that's why when you look at promotional, uh, you know, training and things like that for suicide prevention, you will see a lot about verbal and behavioral and environmental signs and all of this stuff to prepare people to look for these things. Now, I'm gonna say it is it's not as simple as just listing verbal, behavioral, environmental, and you have to follow them. It's very complex, okay? I'm just gonna say it's very complex. 
Uh, they are people who can have all these signs and never attempt suicide. And there are people who can have all the risk factors too, and, you know, a bunch of risk factors and they also don't attempt suicide or don't have suicidal thoughts at all, okay? It's way more complex than just a list of things to follow or to check. But yes, there are songs. And I like this song by Blue October. And it reminds me of that idea of signs or what to look for. It says, where is, where is the cause guard? I keep looking each direction. For a spotlight, give me something. I need something for protection. Maybe flocks and junk will do just fine. Be jets, I am sunk, I am left behind. I am reading for my life, believe me. How can I keep up this reading? Hmm. Yeah, just taking a moment to How can I keep up this reading? Hmm. So that's uh, part of that. Many people, they, they, they're screaming for help basically, but not literally screaming, but there are things that they do that, that are basically saying, I need help. And unfortunately, many people do not notice those or are too distracted by other things. There's also, and this one is the most annoying to me. I, I, don't, I don't know why, but this one triggers me a lot. The idea that people who die by suicide or who attempt suicide or who think about suicide are selfish. That they don't care about their family, especially if they have children. Oh my God, how dare they? They don't care about their children. Uh, they don't care about their friends. They don't care about the suffering they will leave behind. Here's the idea. And, I, and this, might be, this might be controversial to say, but I believe that most suicides are very selfless, actually, because many people who decide to end their lives believe that their family and friends will be better off without them. Because why? There are many reasons, but one, they do not want to be a burden to others, right? They, they might have even been told that they are attention seekers or that they are being dramatic. So some people do have, uh, have had the experience of being told, like, you're just one attention. Like, why don't you get, just get help. Just, can you stop talking about it? Right? So they have, there are people who actually ha have, quote unquote, evidence to say, yeah, I am important to others. I will be better off there. And I put this gif of Megan and Harry because one of the things that caught my attention about Megan in the interview with Oprah, when she, where she said, yeah, I was suicidal, was that she said, well, the tabloids, you know, they're always talking crap about me. And I thought, wow, they will have a blast if I die by suicide. They will have such a blast. I mean, it's like, it's a favor, right? 
it's a favor. They will have a blast, right? So this, the queen, one of, you know, was the queen, I guess not anymore, but thought, thought, oh my God, this will be a gift, especially a gift to the world, but especially to the tyloids that, you know, hate her so much for literally who she is. Last myth, this idea that you need to have, you, or you need to be diagnosed with a mental health, um, quote unquote disorder to be suicidal, or that you, 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 you have to have, you, like, you have to have a mental health issue or challenge. Actually, many people with mental health issues do not experience suicidal thoughts. There are many people who, you know, have been diagnosed with depression or bipolar disorder or whatever it is, and they have never thought about suicide in their lives. Like literally, no. So many individuals with mental health issues do not experience suicidal thoughts, and not all people who attempt or die by suicide have uh, mental health issues. Because the reality is that suicide is a social justice issue. So suicide is just it's way more than just a diagnosis. It's literally about the social and cultural constructs around us. So again, it's, it's basically looking at oppression, things like oppression, for instance. That's really where suicide lies. Um, and I could speak about that forever. But lastly, uh, there's also this idea that people who are suicidal, who think about suicide, or who have attempted suicide are weak, like weak. Like they, 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 they take the easy way out. They are, they don't know how to solve problems. Even stupid. I even have heard people say that people who are or who think about suicide or who end up dying by suicide that they're stupid or something like that. Be, you know, I have heard all types of things. But honestly, when you really think about it, someone who has fought for their lives, especially let's say someone who has suicidal thoughts since they were a child, like me, think about that. Think about resisting the urge to die so many times. And even if you do attempt and survive, the fact that you keep surviving, right? That is that mentally weak? I don't know. I wouldn't say that's mentally weak. I actually would say that's mentally strong to be able to survive once, one, you know, once again, again and again and again, these uh, repetitive thoughts. Uh, or the thoughts that might come once in a while. And these are some questions to think about when it comes to biases. You know, for instance, do you believe that all suicides should be prevented? Like, are there, are there, is there uh, a type of suicide that you think is justifiable? And what I mean by that is many people believe that, let's say you are a child or you are young, they, they might say, 
No, suicide, that's how dare they think about suicide. That's so bad. But then when it comes to the elderly who have like chronic illnesses, they might say, oh yeah, well, I understand why would they, be, why, why do, why would they think about suicide? Yeah, I get it. So like, why? Like what, you know, thinking about those biases, it's not, it's not about the biases itself, it's more about how do they influence the way you respond to suicide? So like, if you notice warning signs, you know, in a child, teenager versus an elderly, like how, what, what? Like how does that influence the way you respond to ages, demographics too, uh, racial, you know, race, ethnicity, all these things, just thinking about how they influence the way you respond. The other thing is, would you consider suicide for yourself? And if not, if not, if, you, if your answer is hell no, why? you know why just ask yourself why and thinking also about you know when someone says they're suicidal yeah the 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 i will say the response should be fear like i don't i don't demonize fear i talk about suicide all the time and i have i have had people come out to me saying they're suicidal and i do become fearful because you are telling me you want to die right and so the thing is, what do you do with that fear? What does that fear move you towards? Does it move you towards curiosity? Like asking questions like, when you say you wanna die, what do you mean by that? Because I'm thinking something, but I don't know. I don't wanna assume uh, that we have the same definition for wanting to die. Or is it, oh, I'm gonna call 911 now because I I'm afraid that you're gonna do something to yourself, right? And I believe this is the last slide. So now that I have talked about myths and just a little bit about biases, there are things that are very important to reduce that discrimination, that prejudice, that stigma, and that is language. You know, I hear many people around me using the word commit suicide, so-and-so committed suicide. And the preferred language will be died by suicide or death by suicide or lost their life to suicide. Why? Because of that same prejudice and discrimination that we are talking about. The idea of committed implies that suicide is a sin, a crime, a selfish act and a personal choice. And I can speak more about that later on, about wait, is suicide not a personal choice? I can speak about that later on if you all want to. Then there's also this idea that, well, if this person ended up dying by suicide, well, they, they had a successful suicide or they had a completed suicide. Or if they attempted, but they survived, they say, well, they have an unsuccessful suicide or they had a failed suicide. So we prefer survived a suicide attempt or lived through a suicide attempt. And that's because this notion of successful or completed implies that there was an achievement, that a goal was met 
And that's, if you think about it, that's extremely messed up. Also, is when I think about it, it's even more messed up for people who have tried, mo- you know, multiple times to end their lives, who have had multiple attempts, and a person, you know, might say, oh my God, they finally, end, you know, they finally completed the suicide. Or, wow, they were finally successful, right? If you think about it, how messed up that is to say something like that. So last, very last thing, I always like to end up any suicide prevention presentation, training, talk with resources. You know, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is like the most popular one, the one that everyone copy and paste in all pamphlets. <laughs> then there is the Trevor Project. Then there is also the crisis text line. You can literally just text home to 741741, literally, and there's an automatic response. There are also peer support lines or war lines, uh, like the Western Mass Peer Support Line. If you're not in Western Mass, then you can go in warline.org and there's like everywhere. Like they have a list of where you can see war lines in different areas. And there's Trans Lifeline as well. Now, I always put this in the end. These three, these are resources that could use active rescue. What I mean, <laughs> wellness or welfare checks, right? They, they, might, they might, might involve law enforcement or emergency services if a person expresses suicide intent, like a desire to attempt in a certain time frame like if they, they have a date or time or whatever, and if they have access to me. So things like guns or pills, et cetera. So I always make sure to, to give informed consent, especially to people who are who identified as co- of color, especially, especially, especially black people, because as we know, they die at higher rates by the hands of the police. So they might be asking for help. They say the truth, right? They might say the truth and then, you, when you look at the window, there's a police car outside, right? So making sure that you know your rights, okay? Making sure that you know where you're calling and what they can do to you, you know, point blank. Uh, and I believe that's the end. Yeah, so yeah, that's the end. I have a bunch of different training programs that I'm currently offering. If you go to my website, or you know you can go to the programs tab or education programs tab and all of their you know everything's there i also am getting interns so i'm gonna have i'm gonna be posting internship um applications soon so if that's something that you're interested in helping with outreach for facilitation a bunch of different things then feel free to uh, follow me on social media because that's where I'm gonna be posting all of these applications. So yeah, that's that's all I have. Amazing, thank you so much. Let's, let's do a round of applause. You may not be able to hear it out there, but it's happening. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, you know, I think you did, such an amazing job of making this conversation be a conversation and be engaged in a way. It can be really cut and dry. I've gone to many trainings as a mental health professional on suicide, 
but the way that you speak about it is amazing and it really connects to me in in a way to kind of normalize this conversation i unfortunately experienced uh, my first introduction to suicide when i was in fifth grade uh, actually i was in fourth grade my buddy was in fifth grade and i can tell you now if, if i was able to have a conversation like this then it would have meant the world to me and it means the world to me now i've lost many people to suicide and um mm. you know the death that that created kind of always leaves this wake of not being able to talk about it but i i really enjoyed you breaking down those stigmas and myths so that it can be a conversation that even has levity in it that's what people miss a lot of the time is you can bring levity into these conversations to still talk about important things so i want to thank you so much for that i mean the rest of this could just be me thanking you so i'm, I'm gonna shut yeah. up in a minute and uh <laughs> kick it over to some of the listeners so we're gonna open up the question answers portion of tonight feel free on facebook live to uh, type any questions or any comments that you have anyone on zoom feel free to type it into the comment section too and i'll just prioritize who whoever types first and I'll have them ask if they're on Zoom. If you're on Facebook Live, I'll ask the question for you. Um, I'm not gonna shut up just yet. So I am gonna ask you a question uh, that I wanted to, to hear some feedback on. Um, uh, so we just got from Stephanie, we just got a comment on Zoom that says, this is incredible. I second that. <laughs> some hearts back and forth. I'm not gonna do the play-by-play -play by the text, but uh, I will if anyone wants it. Uh, so my question and you mentioned it early on when you when you first you said your first introduction was institutionalized like coming in and being institutionalized and and you know people were saying that you weren't safe and then you ran this gamut i wanted to talk a little bit about that because being someone again who works in the field and has been to some inpatient stays and been to residentials has been to all these step down units that they talk about I wanted to maybe have a conversation on how we can prioritize, you know, support and safety for people without creating that feeling of institutionalized, being locked in a room, being stuck in isolation like that. Because we know so much of this is related to that. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on it. Well, it all starts on, it all starts from, from uh, when the person says i'm suicidal or i want to die like what goes through your head when you when you hear those words what assumptions are you making how are you responding to that because that's 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 my thing the system so mental health systems like the address system social work system whatever whatever mental health system encourages fear-based relationships, encourages fear-based relationships with liability, with this idea that if someone says they're suicidal and they get out of your office and they do it, then you're gonna be, you're gonna be like, uh, you know, they're gonna do a lawsuit and you're gonna lose your license and everything is gonna end. <laughs> and I am not demonizing that response either. Um, just like don't demonize the uh, fear response, I don't demonize it. I believe that if, if someone, if the system is telling you, we are going to take your license away, if someone tells you they're suicidal and you don't quote unquote do anything and then they just die, you're going to, you know, 
there's there's a lot of basically what i'm saying is we need to hold accountable this system it's not even the individuals it's the policies like the policies and each institution and at each agency also why what are they telling you you have to do once you hear that someone says well yeah you know i think about using a gun or i don't know maybe i don't know you know i'm the, maybe in a week or whatever it is. Like, what is the system, the policy, the, your supervisors that are tied to the system, what are they telling you that, uh, what are they telling you in, in the ways of how you have to respond? Is that even how you want to respond or are you being forced to respond that way? Um, because again, this fear that you're not doing your job correctly or that you're not following policy or whatever. So that's one, like the idea of the system and what the system forces you to do. The other thing is there is such a lack of transparency when it comes to the suicide conversation. Um, like uh, the reason why I was involuntarily hospitalized so many times in psychiatric hospitals and residential programs is because when I said, yes, I am suicidal. Like when they asked me, are you suicidal? And I would say, yes, I am. They will do, what do you think? They will pick up the phone and said, I am liable. I need to call crisis. I need to, I have to, it is my responsibility. But here's the deal. They never asked me, one, what do you mean by suicidal? Because what I meant was, I am tired. That's all I meant. I didn't mean, I didn't, honestly, back then when I was, what I meant was, I'm tired. I, I didn't even mean to say, like, I didn't, what? Yeah, I didn't even wanna like, again, die. It was just that I was tired and I wanted a break. And I didn't wanna go to school because I didn't wanna stress out. Like that's it, but they never asked me. They never asked me, what do you mean? They never asked me, okay, when you, you think about suicide, what images come to mind? Like, what do, what do you think about? What do you think about? You know, they never asked me. They just call 911. In law enforcement will come with their uniforms and their guns to my home. And the neighbors will look at that. And then there's the embarrassment and there's the guilt. And I will be told, it's for your, it's for your safety. It's for your, it's, this is what's best for you. You didn't ask me was, you didn't ask me. They never asked me, how would you like me to respond to what you're telling me? Never. They just acted upon me like I was an object or something. So yeah, that has been my experience in the mental health field um, and why I am at its client, its patient. Um, I do not use mental health services or psychiatric services. I use peer support services. And, you know, that's just based on my experience. Um, you know, that's, that's just it. <laughs> I don't wanna go back to that. 
I see a question. What did I answer your question? Or no, you did. Or... Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I and I think that's fantastic of an answer. It starts at, at the roots of it and how we approach it. And you know, your presentation is a hundred percent on that. And yeah. I, I really do think a conversation because I think so many people jump at hearing that, but they never specify. They never get the details. And I have yeah. a ton of young patients who are frustrated at school and they say, I want to, I want to kill myself. And then the school calls crisis right away instead of sitting and, and trying to figure out that, Oh, they were just frustrated in that moment. And that's how they yeah. express themselves. Yeah. Literally, it could be, it could mean anything. <laughs> like, it could, Oh my God. It could be, I need to sleep or I am hungry and I haven't eaten in a lot. You know, it could be anything. It could be anything. It's just, and even again, I think there is this idea in when you look at suicide prevention training, they always say, ask the question. You must ask the question. The question. And I'm like, Jesus, relax. Um, I believe this is me. I believe that curiosity and validation should be always prioritized before even asking, are you suicidal or, or things like that? And um, that's me, though. And um, because what, why do you want to know the answer to? First of all, why do you want to know the answer? What are you going to do with that answer? Three, even if I was suicidal, just the curiosity and empathy and validation that you're giving me are already helping me to reduce that suicide risk. So why do you want to know so bad if I want to die? Anyhow, the yeah. point is I could go on around about this. But I want to um, get to Stephanie's question. Yeah. Stephanie, do you want to ask the question? Hi, Isabel. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so really, I obviously we've, we've talked so many times on how just your level of transparency is something that I cherish wholeheartedly. But I, I guess I'm curious as, you know, in full transparency, three times suicide survivors so what you said in regards to like unsuccessful success I'm like huh you know that's interesting I've never heard it that way um but also as we are in these positions now we're creating giving back to our community doing all these things um did you ever end up having like an aha moment where this is this is what I'm supposed to do this is what I'm meant to be doing for Estoyaki and and this is what it's going to look like. Um, what was that like for you? So there is a training. You might have heard about it because everyone, for some reason, is obsessed with this training. It's called QPR. Question, persuade, refer. That is like the most popular suicide prevention training, I think, in this country. Anyone correct me if I'm wrong, but it's so popular. I took a trendy trainer training, an eight-hour trendy trainer uh, training. And before then, I had taken already, I had taken uh, a training, like the um, the actual, like the training for the public, right? Mm -hmm. And I, after I took it, I realized I had to do something. There is no way that we are putting suicide prevention in three letters, first of all, with such a, 
the humanizing approach. I just couldn't do it anymore. I have taken so many suicide prevention trainings and I just never saw myself represented in any of them. And I thought, disgusting. That's like the first word that comes to mind. And if any of y'all who are QPR trainings wanna come at me, come at me. But <laughs> I just find that, I just think it's off. I just think literally the only training, suicide and it's not even suicide prevention, it's like a peer support base. The only training that I respect that talks about suicide is Athena Test to Suicide. Shout out to the Wildflower Alliance. They do that training. That's the only one that I, and of course mine, <laughs> I'm like, you know, self-promotion. Um, but that's the only training that, that training opened my eyes to, I was like, oh my God, someone understands me. But it's still not necessarily culturally relevant. Right. So that is why I took it upon my, that's when I realized after taking that QPR training, after taking more trainings about suicide, wanting to see myself on those and not seeing myself on right. those. Right. Representation. That, yeah. Oh, that's how I, you know, the last straw, you know mm. how I spoke about the last yeah. straw when you're like, I'm that was like the QPR thing that was the last straw mm -hmm. for me. I was like, I need to, I need to create something for my people, honestly. Um, all these trainings are for white people. Come at me. Come at me. My messenger room is it's open. My messenger is open. Come at me. Is based on evidence. They're evidence-based, but what they mean is evidence based on white people. <laughs> And so my curriculum, which is, you know, suicide prevention from a racial justice lens, is that evidence-based? Yes, because stories are valid sources of data. And my story is valid. And my story is data. Just like all this, your story, your story, right? You all your, just share something about your story, right? With suicide, that's data too. Mm -hmm. So my curriculum is also evidence-based. Um, but anyhow, I just, this idea obsession with evidence-based training and these gatekeeper trainings and the humanizing ways of talking about suicide, uh, I just couldn't do it anymore. It's a very I good point though because even myself as a mental health provider working in the system being very familiar with crisis being very familiar with i'm a mandated reporter but also having that ex personal experience i need to make this youth this family feel safe and reassured before i take any next steps you know so it's, it's really important but unless you have that lived experience and you're being able to have that freedom to engage with clients and and in a way where you have that freedom and like, let me kind of navigate this the way that feels right to me versus a system, then, you know, your hands are tied. Now I have a system obviously with my job. It's like, okay, well, yes, that's cool and all, but now notify your supervisor, have a conversation. They'll tell you if you need to call crisis, if you got to put them alert and the family's like, I don't want any of that. And then now there's a mandated reporter issue. And it is incredibly frustrating because the mm -hmm. cultural you know, competence component is missing you know, and, and that's really subjective. It's up to you to kind of determine 
is this family spanking a kid or are they beating a kid and is it a cultural thing or is it like you know where's my place in this and it's really you're outside the box as a provider you're not in that space you're not there every single day so that's it's a it's very valid it's one thing that I can I mean I can only speak for myself as a mental health provider but with my approaches being very different because I lived it had I not lived it and had I had I not you know had me not be Latina like I also would be like well, you should call DCF. Well, we need a system. And it's like, no, you need a hug. <laughs> like, you need to sleep. Did you eat? Are your basic needs met? Like, you know, was, was last night rough? What's going on with your dog? You know, those real things that really don't happen in rapport building with, with all families. And it's unfortunate. So you made very valid points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, that's why when I talk to providers, in the, like I have done training for providers, I'm like, I don't, yes, there is individual and systemic. I get, I get it. There is the systemic uh, thing. I, you know, I did, I was an intern at crisis center. Like I, 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 I have seen both worlds, the peer support, the crisis world. Um, you know, there are things like red flag. You need to flag this person on the testing. And it's like, okay. Because you can totally predict suicide. That's another thing. I don't know about that. I on I don't believe that. I don't uh, this idea of we can predict suicide. Like I don't know. It's too complex. It's just too too complex. But I think it's about. But also, what about that curiosity piece? Like, what do you need? What do you want? And maybe they don't know. But okay. So if you don't know, let's figure this out together. Just have this partnership, this collaboration, these, you know, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, like uh, uh, very quick, I can tell you, I can tell you this, this thing about even access to means, which make makes people very nervous. The idea that, oh my God, you have a gun, you're gonna do it. Or are you thinking about this? We're gonna do it. Again, why aren't we asking questions? Like if you, uh, one thing that I daydream, that I have been daydreaming lately about is my funeral. Now, if I say that to a clinician who doesn't, who doesn't do a suicide prevention from a social justice lens, who is just thinking about accountability to the system, they will be like, well, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with it? Um, it's actually a good thing. But people are like, what? How is that a good thing? Okay. So when I think about my funeral and I see the casket, yes, I see myself. And is it ugly or whatever? Eh, kind of, right? But then I think about people, about my friends, about people who like me, who appreciated me. And I fantasize about them saying nice things and things that I did that I haven't done yet in the present, but you know, fantasizing about, and she did this, and she was so kind, and she helped me once. Bro, that is keeping me alive. So yes, thinking about my funeral inside a casket with people talking about me, saying nice things, does help me be alive. So, but if you don't ask the question, hey, what does seeing your funeral motivate you to do? How do you feel about that? How, do you, how does your body feel? How does your body feel? 
when you think about that? Does it tremble? Does it relax? Does it, if you don't ask those questions, you're gonna miss a huge piece of information. So being, again, and I get it, there's fear. I get it, I get it. But thinking about, okay, is my fear taking that curiosity away? I don't know. So that's just a point. Thank you for that. That's, that's a very valid point and very awesome that you shared your own kind of personal thoughts on that and, and what you've been talking about. And I, I really appreciate your honesty and openness to this. And one of the reasons I reached out to you to have you come speak today was 100% because of that. And making this conversation more upfront and being able to talk about our own experiences with suicidal thoughts and suicidal plans and ideas and attempts. And I think that's, you know, part of the stigma is curable mission. Why we're having people come and talk about this stuff is, is to bring it to the forefront and make it a, a talking point within the community instead of being hidden behind things and fear of talking about it. So I think everything, you presented today and talked about does that a hundred percent so thank you again i told you the rest of this was just me saying thank you so there it is one more time i'm going to kick it over to facebook live any questions for our viewers on facebook live right now um if not we'll come back and ask any questions on zoom and you know if not we'll end the presentation and if you could, do you mind if you share that last slide with resources? Um, can you send that to me or post it in the Facebook group? So that way it's available for everyone. That'd be oh fantastic. yeah, I can send that. Yeah, I can totally, totally send it. Um, and I guess no, no, no one's asking me a question, but I want to say this too. Okay. <laughs> um, if someone ever tells you, you know, if they confide in you, I am suicidal, and you, your like curiosity is out of the picture. You're like your head is you're, like your thoughts are going like miles per hour. Like, ah, oh my god! I think the, I think that I will, I will have love for someone to tell me. You know what? I'm scared. You just told me you wanna die. I'm having a bunch of assumptions in my head. My, my heart has dropped. <laughs> my stomach is like, I'm shaking. Help me stay curious. Help me stay curious. Because right now, my mind is telling me, call 911. My mind is telling me, you're going to do it. I'm going to lose you. So help me help me stay curious because I, I wanna hear you. I wanna listen to you, but right now I'm being distracted by all of these thoughts. Now, many people think, oh, but you're putting work on that person. You're, you're, you're giving work to the person who was asking for help. Okay. So I prefer that over a police officer coming into their home and killing them. I'm just saying, I prefer that over uh, some, uh, whoever could be a clinician or whatever social worker uh, being like, yeah, so we're going to get you into a residential program 
and then being uh, in a solitary confinement, like I was for hours and hours, screaming, crying. Jesus, that was awful. I even have flashbacks about that. It was this awful, awful thing. I, pre I prefer, it does work. <laughs> well, I prefer that work because it is, again, it shouldn't be a one-sided thing. This idea that, well, if you're, especially if you're a provider and you think, well, it's my responsibility to save that life. <sighs> okay, and who are you to be like, I'm, I have, I'm so, like, who are you? Superwoman, Superman? Like, please. Um, like, this is supposed to be me walking alongside you, you know? I am not running. I am not stopping. You are walking, walking alongside you. Lead me, lead me. So I don't know. I just wanted to say that in case there were questions about, okay, well, what do we do? If someone says, it's, because that question always comes up. Like, what do I we do? I do have a question kind of close to that. What are your thoughts on safety planning? So, I, so yeah. for us normally, and even like wrapping up um, my my master's, it was it was like so much focus on the right way to conduct a risk assessment and, and it was so just like okay you know figuring out like you were saying the the behavioral the environmental all these things and like okay so you're gonna take this piece of paper I'm giving you and you're gonna go home with it and this is your safety plan and I had a really hard time with that term safety plan um so then there was talk about well do you do a safety contract and if I'm struggling right now with suicidal ideation this piece of paper right here what is it going it what is it going to do for me like okay I see the resources I see if you have anxiety then you're gonna use a stress ball if you're feeling like you are suicidal you're gonna rate on a scale of one to ten how bad that is and you're gonna tell your mom it I can see the pros but I see so many cons when it is specific to suicide because if I am feeling this way and my safety plan, my safety contract isn't working, then I'm going to feel even more like a failure because I don't know how to use it. And that's just mm -hmm. going to more so confirm. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. I have a lot of thoughts about that. So one, I don't like it. <laughs> Not the first thought. Uh, and you made such a good point about the disappointment of, oh no, I didn't do it. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Uh, and also thinking about like the pressure, you might feel like you have to, you don't want to disappoint like the therapist or the provider, right? It's a bunch, it's a bunch of things, but uh, also one, did this person want a safety contract? Do they under, even understand what that is? Like, if you're suggesting one, and like, did you ask, do you want this? <laughs> like, that would be a very cool question. Do you even want this? Do you even want to do this? To write it's interesting. Down? It's like, our policy to do it within 24 hours of a crisis, which goes back to the lens that you're referring to. It's like, why is that a policy and why is that not 
like a sliding scale, you know, versus like, no, you have to do that or now you are liable and we don't want you to be liable. Because it's about protecting the provider. Absolutely, absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes providers and just people that are not providers focus so much on themselves on feeling comfortable that they forgot about the person who they're trying to supposedly help. <laughs> it's like, oh wait, I just focus about me. Oh no. Um, and so yeah, that's you know the idea that that's not even a question. Like, actually, do you want to do this? <laughs> like, like that's not even a thing. Like it's just an automatic thing, paper, whatever that that you do, you know. And, I don't, and again, I have questions. I have nothing against questions. It's the way the questions are asked. Right. And like the behind it. Right. And like, it's oh. like, it's good to have those options. Absolutely. Like we can yeah. do safety planning. We can do check-in with a peer. We can do calling the service together. We can, options are wonderful, but don't make those decisions for me when I already feel so powerless. Exactly. Exactly. And also, we focus so much on stopping the suicide, but not addressing the pain, which is the whole point. Because why are we so obsessed with the death part, with the suicide part? It's like, wait a second, because I see suicide as a response. I don't see like, I don't know, when someone tells me they're suicidal, first of all, I never assume what they even mean. But also I see it as, hey, it has become an option to that person. or this option that exists, okay? Suicide is an option for everybody, okay? It is an option. What in your life has empowered that option? What has elevated that option? So, because, you know, we have the option of living, of staying alive. So somehow it has become powerless. It has lost power. So what has given power to this option, to this very real option? you know if safety planning was like that if you ask those uh open-ended questions where people can actually be vulnerable that would be great but it's so much about you cannot die you can you it's not an option no i completely agree this was amazing as well steve this is wonderful i have to step out but this is wonderful and thank you for joining us bye I think that's a very powerful way to kind of end our conversation today, right? Really questioning some of the metrics that are out there and different ways to engage on the same topic. And I think you're right. We, there's so much fear about the end result related to suicide that the focal point is not really like the what's happening now, like what's causing this, what's empowered, exactly what you said, empowered it to this moment, right? What has that person's journey been to get to that, that point? And I think that's a very apropos way for everyone listening, everyone watching, everyone participating to, to think about how they navigate and what the narrative out there is on, on suicide and our own biases and myths that we buy into. I really like the bias slide that you had because I think it really calls into question a lot of those. A lot of those statements can seem really jarring if you just look at them, but the way that you phrase it is like, it's not about these statements, it's about how this flavors how you interact with it is, is super important.
Exactly. We all have unconscious bias. And, uh, and we talk about suicide, right? That is many times it's seen as a more like a morale, like something about morale and, and even values and things like that. It's, it's a very, and it's controversial, right? So we are going to have unconscious bias. We are going to have biases. Is how, what, what do they push you towards? Right. That's the question. It's not even, yeah, like you were saying, I'm, I'm not even talking about, you know, the statement itself. It's more like, how, what do they push you to do or to say? I think that's more of the focus for me, at least for me, when I think about suicide. So I'm going to wrap this up with one more huge thank you. I know I've been a broken record on that, but I do really appreciate your time, your knowledge, your grace, your humor, and the infectious, infectionness. I, I messed that up, but how, how well that kind of combines to get people thinking about this topic and having this conversation. So our hope is that this is not just a one-time viewing that more people view it once it's out there, more people listen to it when it's on the podcast, more people are asking questions and um, following and reaching out to you and to me and sharing in this community around this. Mm. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.